Good evening from Northern California. Well, it's been a long time since I've been back here. It feels like it's been a long time, but maybe it hasn't been all that long. Today we're reading The Return of the Native out of the book The Lady in Gold, The Extraordinary Tale of Gustav Klimt's Masterpiece, Portrait of Adele Blockbar. Authored by Anne Marie O'Connor. The Return of the Native. Maria was oblivious to the tension building in Vienna on the February day she and Fritz returned from their European honeymoon and glimpsed the Gothic spires of St. Stephen's. Fresh snow framed the cobblestones of old Vienna as they walked to the Cafe Central. Their honeymoon was transformed by the magic wand of Bernard. Bernard had filled his Paris apartment with early blooming lilacs from southern Europe, so the newlyweds were overwhelmed by the heavy, sweetly musky scent when they opened the door. Servants had put champagne and caviar on ice and filled the pantry with French cheeses, fresh bread, and Swiss chocolates. In St. Maurice, Bernard booked them into a romantic little hotel where the staff had been so well briefed on the honeymoon they exchanged winks as they waited on Fritz and Maria. When they returned, Bernard handed them the keys to an apartment at the Altman compound on Siebenbrunngrasse. Maria gasped with delight when Bernard opened the door. Shimmering gray-green silk drapes lined the windows of the sun-filled sitting room. The kitchen was spacious, with iridescent green ceramic tiles and modern features unusual in old-fashioned Vienna. The master bathroom was a vision compared to the cramped family bathroom at Stubenbastai. There were plump Turkish towels and French lavender soaps. The apartment was fully furnished with a lovely Art Deco walnut bedroom set and simple, stylish silverware. Bernard took them down to the garage to show them a new styred sedan with red roses on the front seat. He waved away Maria's insistence that this was really too much. Maria had cracked the tough exterior of this tough Galician and inspired his love of extravagance. Bernard opened, adored, openly adored his new sister-in-law, and like her father, Maria admired scrappy, generous Bernard. Maria's German-born mother was harder to win over. At one large family lunch, Bernard put his arm around Teresa's shoulder and said, Well, we Eastern Jews, Teresa shook his hand from her shoulder. The Blockbauers are not Ostjuden, she said coldly. We are German. Maria was mortified. Bernard turned away abruptly. Maria went to apologize, but Bernard was shaking with laughter. Not long after, Teresa tripped and fractured her arm at the state opera. The cast was awkward, and it was difficult to find a coat whose sleeve could be pulled over it, 
Teresa threatened not to go out at all until her arm healed. A few days later, a messenger arrived at the door with a gift-wrapped box carrying a note of condolence from Bernard. Nestled in the rustling tissue paper was a pale lavender cashmere sweater with only one full sleeve and a cunning little shaw cape on the other side to cover the cast. It was beautiful and fit Teresa perfectly. Bernard also sent an orchid in a pale purple that matched the sweater. Even Teresa admitted the sweater was in very good taste. To Maria's father, the Altmans were a great gift. His opera-singing son-in-law with his bohemian musician friends fit in perfectly at the Stubenvestai. Gustav was ebullient as he played his cello in the twilight one unseasonably mild Friday evening in March. Hans Mulbacher, a childhood friend of Maria, fiddled away on his violin. Maria stood under an open window that let in the first soft breezes of spring. Gustav watched his duckling, still a girl really, trying to act the part of the poised married lady she had be- would become. At 75, all seemed right in the world as Gustav caught Maria's eye and smiled, playing his fourth son, the Rothschild Stradivarius. Outside, shouts rose from the esplanade. A loud speech echoed from the apartments of their neighbors. What a racket! Gustav gestured to Maria to close the window. Instead, someone turned on the radio. Their chancellor was speaking. Gustav and Hans resignedly put down their bows. Chancellor Kurt Schuschnigg was saying Austria would allow Hitler for Hitler's forces to enter Austria. He said he would capitulate to avoid shedding German blood. God protect Austria, he said soberly. Gustav looked around the room. His guests were alarmed. What did this mean? Would Hitler really rule Austria? Guests pulled on their coats, called home. What was happening? Maria and Fritz sat down with Gustav and Teresa. Austria had weathered many storms over the years with riots, shooting in the streets. The telephone rang. Some of their friends talked of leaving Austria immediately. To Teresa, this sounded extreme. She couldn't just pack overnight bags and get on a train. Gustav was not in the best of health. Fritz said the thing to do was remain calm. What Fritz really wanted was to talk to Bernard. But no one had seen Bernard since he went to work that morning. Maria's old suitor, Gustav Reinsch, was going to take Leopold's wife, Antoinette, to the Czech border at once with their son, Peter, and he would try to take others. But Robert wouldn't hear of leaving. Robert's wife, Thea, was about to have a baby. Leopold needed to stay and look after the family businesses. No one agreed on the right thing to do. Hans bid the disconcerted guests farewell and picked up his violin case,
A convoy of trucks came down the Ringstrasse, filled with pink-checked adolescents in the brown-shirted uniform of Nazi enthusiasts. They raised their arms at Hans, crying, Heil Hitler, and Jews kicked the bucket. A group of men in Lederhosen marched up the Ringstrasse in formation, smiling exuberantly, singing about breaking Jewish bones in the coming Whig war. Men with torches mingled in the crowd, chanting, Down with the Jews! Idiots, Hans mused. It's like a carnival for the Nazi party. At his student hostel, Hans sat down and wrote a letter to the chancellor, assuring him that most Austrians supported him, and Austria will live again. Hans walked through the jubilant crowds to the chancellery and slipped the letter under the door. Hans prayed this would be this would blow over. Some of his old high school friends, even a few Catholic cousins, had joined the illegal Nazi party in his hometown of St. Wolfgang. They weren't bad people. They called themselves idealists and were only and were openly enthusiastic about Hitler and his promises in Mein Kampf. They dismissed anti-Semitic violence as excesses committed by fringe underminers whom the Führer couldn't control. When Hans returned to his hostel, a friend of his ran out gleeful. Hitler was coming. He laughed off the violent Nazi chants. Don't worry about the songs of the trembling of the broken bones, he told Hans. It's just nonsense. Hans, Hansel, we will be... Sorry. It's just nonsense. Hansel, we will be united to Germany, and Austria will be great once again, like before the World War, his friend said euphorically as he and the group of students spilled into the street to join the celebration in the Stevensplatz. A few mornings later, Maria woke to loud noises in the garage. She dressed and went down the stairs. There were strange men there. They seemed to have pried open the garage door, and they were trying to roll her new car into the street. The men had swastikas on their sleeves. The officer in charge of the men smiled when he saw Maria and introduced himself as Gestapo agent Felix Landau. They were confiscating the car, Lando explained. He was polite, obsequious, almost apologetic, as he asked Maria to show him into the apartment. Landau was not particularly intimidating. He was badly dressed and spoke uncultivated German. He seemed a little sheepish about barging in. Was she alone? Lando asked, standing close to Maria and smiling in a manner she found overly familiar. Maria felt a stab of fear. No, she said, my husband is with me, and suddenly the word husband seemed like an amulet of protection. In the foyer of the Altman's apartment, Landau introduced himself to Fritz in the cordial tone of a social call. As if it were the most natural thing in the world, he asked Maria to show him her valuables. Fritz held Maria's gaze for a moment as if to say, just do what he says. Fritz offered Landau a cigarette. They made a small talk while Maria fetched her jewels. When she returned, Fritz was charting, chatting, excuse me. Fritz was chatting nonchalantly with Landau 
at the kitchen table. Maria spread her earrings, brooches, and even her engagement ring on the table. Landau sorted through them. They were fine pieces, antique jewelry of Adele's from the Wiener, from the Wiener Wurststadt, but Landau seemed unimpressed. Then Maria called, recalled Adele's diamond necklace. Fernand had given it to her as a wedding present. If she didn't report it, they might be arrested. So she told Landau. His face lit up. She told Landau she would call her jeweler. As she went to the phone, she heard Fritz and Landau talking about what a rainy spring it had been. Are you sure? Maria's jeweler, an older, decent Catholic man, asked Maria with disconcerting concern in his voice. Maria had no choice. The jeweler sent the necklace over in a blue velvet box. Landau eagerly pulled out Adele's diamond necklace, fingering it with satisfaction, then slipped it into his pocket like a handful of marbles. Maria was going to tell him that such a fine piece of jewelry could get scratched rolling around the pocket chain with pocket change and car keys. Adele had hardly worn the necklace after she decided she was a socialist. It was in perfect condition, but Maria remained silent. Landau walked through the apartment, appraising the modern kitchen and bathroom. He ran his hand over Bernard's luxurious brocade, brocade drapes, lingering in the bedroom and rubbing the fine sheets between his fingers, until Maria nervously led him back to the kitchen. Landau told Maria and Fritz they had to move out of the apartment. As she and Fritz packed, Landau stopped them, demanding a satin dress some fine stockings, an elegant black smoking suit. He spotted a silk dress hanging over a chair. Maria had set it aside to remove a red wine spot. He wanted that, too. Did she have have to give him anything he demanded? What difference did it make, really, Maria thought. A lot of these things were wedding gifts. She hadn't had them long enough to be attached to them. Landau's men, meanwhile, brought a suitcase and a small bags up the stairs. The, the Gestapo was taking the apartment Bernard had created for them after just ten days of married life there. As Marie and Fritz headed downstairs to another Altman family apartment in the building, the guards brought Landau's things in. Was Landau going to sleep in their bed? That would put Maria and Fritz under house arrest. The agents stationed at the door seemed to leave no question. They were Landau's prisoners. Or were they? Landau smiled as Maria left for the streetcar and said goodbye in his working-class Viennese accent. At least Landau didn't try to greet her the way he did his fellow agents and her neighbors, who gleefully replied in kind, Heil Hitler. The streets were erupting with joy. The newspaper said Hitler was on his way. People poured out of their homes and ran past her, waving Nazi flags on their way to the Heldenplatz, Heroes Square, as the news spread. At the Stubenbastei, her father was sitting in his study, pale and silent. Gustav greeted Maria with a wan, wan, with a wan smile as Frolin Emma quietly prepared lunch. Outside, people began to cheer wildly. 
Teresa walked briskly through the apartment, shutting windows and drawing drapes. Pips, Maria said to her father, come have something to eat. It was impossible to ignore Hitler's arrival. A far-off roar grew as the motorcade neared Heroes Square. Maria wished there was a way to nail the windows shut as the family sat quietly and listened to the crowd chant, Heil Hitler. Gustav stared into his plate silently. As Maria made her way home to Fritz, the path of Hitler's motorcade was strewn with roses. Eager Viennese waved the flags of Nazi Germany. If only he, we could find Bernard, Maria thought. Bernard was so fearless. Bernard would make her father strong. But Bernard, Maria, and Fritz discovered had fled. He was driving across Vienna as the news of Anschluss came on the radio. Turn the car around, Bernard ordered the chauffeur. Get us to the Hungarian border. Bernard, with his sprawling textile empire and foreign bank accounts, knew he would be a prime target. Bernard had been keeping an eye on Hitler since he began to threaten Austria in February. The memory of anti-Jewish mobs in Poland was etched in his psyche. Bernard's driver pulled up a quiet, up to a quiet rural border crossing. A guard stopped him, Bernard insisted. The guard, perhaps persuaded by some of Bernard's cash, told him to wait for darkness. At nightfall, the guard turned his back. Bernard slipped out of his... Elegant sedan and ran into the woods of Hungary. In Vienna, the Gestapo was furious. Bernard's wife, Nellie, tearfully protested that she had no idea where he was. Do you know your husband has another family? They taunted her, confirming a terrible suspicion she had long harbored. Did you know your husband had a mistress and three children? Maria's father was more withdrawn every day and he complained of vague abdominal pains, perhaps from nerves. When a Gestapo agent banged on the door, Gustav didn't even come out of his study. His stern wife had long intimidated him, but now he relied on her strength. Teresa showed the Gestapo agent to the parlor. Would you mind removing your hat for a lady, she said witheringly. The pink-cheeked young man quickly put his hat on the settee. The next morning, Therese insisted that Gustav accompany her on a stroll in the composer's park. He trudged by the golden statue of Johann Strauss like a sleepwalker. When they returned, Fräulein Emma opened the door with a look of alarm. The Gestapo had come. The offices had asked to see the Rothschild's Stradivarius cello. George, the butler, and Oak had opened the glass music cabinet and handed over the valuable instrument. The Gestapo carried it away. Gustav was visibly shaken. Did they have to take his cello? Maria thought as she walked from Stubenbastai to see Crystal. How did the Gestapo know he had it? They knew everything. Crystal's father must be happy, Maria thought. He beloved, his beloved Hitler was in Vienna. Crystal opened the door with red-rimmed eyes, wearing a simple black dress, her wheat-blonde hair in a French twist. Maria, my God, something awful has happened. 
Crystal whispered, pulling Maria into the apartment so neighbors wouldn't hear. Crystal poured them each a glass of wine. Crystal couldn't talk long. Of course, father was delighted when Hitler came. Then he discovered he was violating the race laws. Crystal's mother, a baptized Catholic, had Jewish parents. That meant Crystal and her sister were half Jewish. This was news to her father. His euphoria faded to reveal an impossible future. He found his old World War I pistol, raised it to his temple, and pulled the trigger. He was so happy Hitler was coming. Crystal said, shaking her head. He found out all of his dreams were false. Maria gasped. She had never liked Crystal's father, but this was shocking. There was more. The Nazi fiancé of Crystal's sister had broken off the engagement, though perhaps he could help them escape. Anton Felsovanie had gone to see Hitler speak out of curiosity. All of Vienna was at the at the Heldenplatz, waving and cheering. When Felsavanya got home, his mother, Gertrude, told him she had Jewish parents. They had to leave their elegant palace on Pelicangasa to avoid being arrested. After a lifetime as a Catholic, on the day of Hitler's triumph, Felsavanya had discovered he was Jewish. Felsavanya's sister, Maria Aline, a comely, slow-eyed girl with a sleek bob, was jilted by her Catholic fiancé. Felsavanya might be Crystal's husband, Maria thought, if Gertrude weren't such a snob. Not that it would help now. Crystal went to the parlor mirror and began to pin up loose strands of her long blonde hair. With her blue eyes and hourglass figure, Crystal was the living image of a good German girl. It all seemed so bizarre. You'd better go, Crystal said. My mother and sister will be back. They're trying to organize a memorial. There are problems with my father's family, though they all seemed to like us before. Crystal looked at Maria. What a mess. So now we're all going to leave just like that, Crystal said, looking around the comfortable apartment with its plush rugs, his father's her father's family portraits, the ticking antique clock decorated with the pastoral maiden and her suitor. Leave everything? That night, Maria went home to Fritz. Bernard had sent word, you must leave the country, all of you. I'll arrange it. Don't do anything to provoke the Gestapo. The mobs in the streets seemed to be growing more violent. Terrible stories were coming out of the poor neighborhood of Leopoldstadt. Elderly Jews were being ordered to get down on their hands and knees to scrub the streets. Sometimes the water was mixed with acid, so it burned their hands. In the posh Waring district, Nazis urinated on the heads of Jewish women as they knelt down to scrub. Brown shirts were forcing merchants to paint Juden in big letters on their shops. They grabbed a woman who ventured into a Jewish store and hung a sign around her neck. This Aryan swine buys from Jews, forcing her to sit in the same, no, 
forcing her to sit in the store window for hours, weeping while crowds yelled insults and spit at her. Jeering crowds were plundering stores and even barging into the homes of Jewish families. Wealthy families like the Blockbauers had factories, valuables, and bank accounts that could be used to bolster the coffers of the Third Reich. But how long could it the how long could the shield sorry, but how long could that shield them? Dapper Law Louis Rothschild was locked up at Gestapo headquarters at the Hotel Metropole, where Mark Twain had imagined he saw Satan from his window. The Gestapo agents who searched the home of the aging industrialist Isidore Pollock beat him so badly that he died. Franz Rottenberg, the chairman of the Kreditanstalt, was picked up by the SS agents and pushed to his death from a speeding car. Uncle Ferdinand had briefly attempted to organize a monarchist rebellion across against the Auschwitz, the Anschluss at his age. Thank God he'd given up and fled to his Czech castle. What a relief, Maria thought, that Fernanda didn't have to listen to the news that Adele's old friend Karl Renner, the dashing hero of Red Vienna and former chancellor, endorsed the takeover as a way to heal the wounds of World War I. In a statement covered by National Radio, Renner confessed some distaste for the methods of the Anschluss, but the Anschluss has no, nonetheless been achieved. It is a historical fact, Renner said. I regard this as satisfaction indeed for the humiliations of Saint-Germain, Saint-Germain and Versailles. The 20 years of stray wandering of the Austrian people is now ended. Maria and Teresa listened in disbelief. How could a one-time hero of Red Vienna place a seal of approval on a movement that had persecuted Jews for years in Germany? What about the Jewish friends who had helped Renner become chancellor, build schools and hospitals, implement social reforms? Were they now so expendable? Maria flicked the radio off. What if her father heard... But Gustav was sitting silently, staring blankly at the curtains drawn over the closed windows. The Ringstrasse, the source of so much joy and pleasure to Gustav, with its promenades, moonlit strolls, and cafes, was now a source of dread. He didn't dare to walk around the corner. Gustav sat like a ghost in his chair. When Maria kissed him, he managed a wry smile. Now the family concealed many things from Maria's father. They kept the radio off in the apartment in, a few days later when the Nazi propaganda minister, Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels staged an hours-long rally in Vienna for an appalling vast sea of admirers. Goebbels dismissed foreign press reports of attacks on Jews as just gruelmachen, gruesome fables. I, I have been informed that many Jews in Vienna were, are committing suicide, he told the crowd with faux sadness, alluding to reports that hundreds of Viennese Jews had taken their lives since the Anschluss. In the past, Germans committed suicide. Now Jews 
are committing suicide and there is nothing I can do about it since I cannot put a policeman behind every Jew, Goebbels said in a coldly mocking tone. The crowd roared with laughter and applause. The world had gone mad. What were they going to do? Maria and Fritz still found refuge in a new love, in new love, even under the watchful eye of Felix Landau. Maria was concerned, but not frightened, when in late April, as the chestnut trees bloomed along the ringstrasse, the Gestapo came to pick up Fritz for questioning. We'll bring him back this afternoon, Landau assured Maria. Night fell, then dawn. Fritz had not returned. Landau sounded a little tougher now as he told Maria that Fritz was at Rosarlande Land, a police jail where political prisoners were held for questioning by the Gestapo at the Hotel Metropole. Fritz would be released, Landau said, when Bernard turned over the foreign accounts of his textile factory and everything else. Wow. And that is the end of the return of the native. Mm. Wow. That's a heavy chapter. And the next chapter is called Love Letters from a Bride. Well, I hope you can digest that one. Mm. (sighs) Yep, I can hardly wait to hear the next chapter. Well, I hope you're still enjoying the story. And we are now on page, if you're following along in the book, this is, we just ended on page 114. All right. Have a good evening. Take care.